0: talk a lot about what's going on in the world as it relates to current events. The first slide, I, 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 I couldn't help myself, Maria, I had to show a picture of <laughs> Juline and the girl. So while she's gallivanting around in the beach, I'm here teaching principles of liberty because I am committed 100% to the cause. <laughs> Juline took the day off. She's down there with her So to her left is her baby sister, Geraldine. To her right is her sister, I think that's Kath. Yeah, that's Kathleen. And then on the end is the oldest sister, and that's Feline. And so they're here through Sunday. So they're down at the beach having a great time. Principles 22, 23, and 24. So we're going to go over three principles today. Next week, we're going to do principles 25 and 26. And what Jolene and I had talked about doing over the next two weeks is we're going to provide maybe 35, 40 minutes of content, if not less. And then we want to open it up to hear from you all. So come prepared, if you would, the next couple of weeks to talk about things that you have learned and the application of what you learned in your life in terms of what you've done in the home and out in the community. We want to hear from you. So please come prepared. The next couple of weeks to talk about principles one through 28 that you've studied. Hopefully everyone is reading out of their 5,000 year leap. They're going through the manual ahead of time so that when we get together on Thursday, we just provide an overview of what you've already learned so you can hear it again and write these principles on your heart so that you can make a difference in your home and when you go out in the community. I have to tell you, these principles resonate. The one principle we discussed just last week where the, the keystone to, to preserving freedom is strong local government. Strong local government is the keystone to preserving human freedom. So I had the opportunity to speak to a young group of, I'm going to call them kids because they're a lot younger than I am. And it was, it was actually towards the end of COVID, so it wasn't so recent. But anyway, most of the kids were kids of color, probably in their mid to late 20s, and they had a business they were running, and they wanted to talk to me about what's going on in Washington, D.C., and what do I see going forward in terms of the, the environment, what's going on with these mandates. And will, they, will the economy get going again? So I kind of gave them an overview of Washington, D.C. because I've been in and around it for the last 20 plus years of my career. And so we got into the discussion and they began to ask me questions about, well, how, how do we fix this mess? How do we fix this mess? And it was so easy to go to principle 21. And I didn't exactly say word for word what that principle is, but I talked about what's associated with it. And when I talked about them as individuals being empowered to solve problems close to where they originate, it resonated with them. Because you know these young people who are going through school today, and we're gonna talk a little bit about this later, are being groomed and being shaped and formed into little social justice warriors. So these young people today have a phenomenal sense of justice. And, and they think it's godlike actually to feel the pain of the marginalized, even if the marginalized have made decisions in their lives that have caused the pain that they're in. But young people are in, going through school, they've been conditioned, they've been indoctrinated with these kind of principles. So when I was able to highlight that principle about strong local government and making decisions at the local level, they got it they got it immediately and they agreed with it. And we had a really fruitful, wonderful conversation. Just yesterday, our 18 year old Alvin, uh, finally he graduated from high school and he's in government school. He's the last one in government school. We have a 14 year old who's going to private Catholic school. We're fortunate enough to have the resource to be able to send her there. I would actually work eight jobs or have her be homeschooled before I sent another child back to government school. But anyway, The the keynote speech was all about me, 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 me. And my daughter said something superly profound afterwards. She said, You know, that's why people are unhappy. Not to mention what's going on with with our kids and the COVID lockdowns and the mask and what we've done to them. It was all focused on what they can do for themselves. And Kayla made a profound statement. She said that. As indicated, that's why people are unhappy today, because the happiest people that I know are the ones that are serving, that are not thinking about themselves, that are moving outside of themselves to serve others, which helps them forget about themselves, forget about their problems just for a minute and realize that there are others out there who have more unfavorable circumstances. And when you serve others, you feel good about yourself and the person that you're serving feels good about it. The blessings from heaven are, are allowed to intervene. And, and that's, that's just godly. And so we are, we are fighting a war and our kids are the casualties. And so we have to be armed with the knowledge that we need to, to, to stand on that wall and, and be there for them and for ourselves and for our families. So let's get into the 22nd principle, which is a free people should be governed by law and not the whims of men. So right in the text, it says to be governed by the whims, which is emotions and feelings of men is to be subject to the ever-changing capriciousness of those in power. So what does that mean? That means that we are governed by people who are in power, who basically they change their personality based on the condition and the environment. And we are ruled by what they're feeling at the time and their emotions. And this is, this is ruler's law at its worst. And in such a society, nothing is dependable and no rights are secure as they change with the personality of whoever is in power. Now, the founders define law as a rule of action. And what did they mean by this? So they define law as a rule of action, which was intended to be as binding on the ruler as it was upon the people. So the laws apply to everyone, just like in the Bible, the commandments apply to everyone. As John Locke said, freedom of men under government is to have a standing rule to live by common to every one of that society. And what we find ourselves in today and it's so astounding. I was just in the barber's chair today talking about politics very, very briefly because uh, I didn't want to get into it too much because I knew where he stood. But we were talking about how people who are in power seem to never get in trouble. We, all, we have different rules for the elites and different rules for us. And we both came to the conclusion that if we had done what they were talking about on TV, we would be in jail. So John Adams indicated that it's the responsibility of society to establish fixed laws. And he said, no man will contend that a nation can be free that is not governed by fixed laws. All other government than that of permanent known laws is the government of mere will and pleasure. And so, what John Adams is intimating here is that everyone knows these laws because they're simple, they're easy to understand, and that we are free when we are governed by fixed laws. And that resonates with people who are believers because we know that the commandments of God help us to be free, help us to keep ourselves from our self chosen bondage if we live according to the laws and precepts and dictates of our supreme creator. He actually makes us free when we live our commandments. 22nd principle of free people should be governed by law, not the winds of men. Aristotle, whom we've talked about before, this is a profound statement he made. He said, even the best of men in authority are liable to be corrupted by passion. We may conclude then that law is reason without passion, and it is therefore preferable to any individual. So he compares law to reason. And when we talk about law, that's at the heart of a republic versus democracy, which we discussed before in this class. A republic is based on the rule of law, and a democracy is based on feelings and emotion. So in a republic, if murder, if, if the Lord of heaven said that murder is wrong and punishable, then that's the law, and it's unchangeable. But in a democracy, if the majority of the people feel like, well, murder, man, maybe not so bad. Maybe, you know, there's instances where we think it's okay. They can change the law. That's why the enemies of freedom so very desperately want us to be a democracy. We've become a nation of feelings. It's so astounding to see what's going on with individuals. You almost can't have a conversation with people because they get so emotional and then you counter it with logic, and you just end up talking past each other. So law is a positive good in preserving liberty. And this is what Mark just highlighted. And it talks about how godly people really view the commandments. Law is a positive good in preserving liberty. And what does that mean? Let's, let's read what John Locke said. He said, the end of the law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. For in all the states of created beings capable of laws, where there is no law, there is no freedom. For liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law instead of treating law as a as merely a code of negative restraints. That's how the non-believers look at the commandments. Oh, they're just keeping you from doing what you want to do. They're keeping you from having fun. So instead of looking at it as a negative restraint and a prohibition, the founders considered to, the law to be a system of positive rules by which they could be assured of enduring their rights and the protection of themselves, their families, and their property. In other words, law was a positive good rather than a necessary evil. Consider the blessed and happy state you're in individually when you're keeping the commandments. And if we should fall and mess up, which we do on a daily basis, I do, everyone does, then we have the beautiful atonement of Jesus Christ where we can ask for forgiveness and then we can dust ourselves off and move on. Okay, laws should be understandable and stable. James Madison said, it will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read or so incoherent that they cannot be understood. Is, is that what we're experiencing today? We, we are, they are passing legislation that it used to be a bill would be introduced. First, there would be a hearing. Then based on that hearing and that information, a congressman or a senator would introduce a bill. Then the bill would go have a hearing, and not, not, not a hearing, but it would have a, it would be, sent to a committee, it would be marked up. Members would have an opportunity to offer amendments. Then if the committee liked the bill, as amended, they would report it out. It would then go to the rules committee in the House. And then the rules committee would decide when it goes to the floor under the direction of the speaker. The bill goes to the floor. It's open for debate. And it goes through a long, arduous, deliberative process, which the founders gave us because they didn't want us to be subject to the whims of men. They wanted laws to be deliberate and talked through and open and transparent to the public and easily understood. Then that bill would get reported out of the House. It would go to the Senate. The Senate would go through the same process. And then the two bills, if they're different, then they would appoint a conference committee, members from the House, members from the Senate. It would get together, go over the differences of the bill, come out with something that they both agreed upon, and then it would go back to each house to be debated again on the floor before it's sent to the president for signature. Now, you've got the majority leader, the minority leader in both houses, the Speaker of the House, and a representative from the White House in a room deciding what bills they're going to be passing major pieces of legislation they do it behind closed door they write these bills they're 800 to 1000 to 1500 pages no no one knows who's in them and then they and then the, the members have 24 to 48 hours to review them there's no hearing there's no markup and it's rammed down the throat of the american people and that's been the process for the for the last long as i can remember Ben from Benjamin Franklin said only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters, meaning more laws. We are passing, particularly at the state level, passing way too many bills and too many laws. So here's some examples of what's going on. You've got the guns laws now where the federal government is not even supposed to be dealing in gun What I I highlighted before in terms of no infringement of the right to bear and carry arms, to bear arms. The federal government is not even supposed to be involved in that. You've had these COVID mandates, these these mandates and decrees that come from the governor or the city or the mayor, not even the city council or even the state legislature pass laws. And then you've got the congressional appropriations bill. There used to be, so there's 13 appropriations committees, and each committee would focus on their specific area of jurisdiction, Department of Defense, Homeland Security, Natural Resources. All of those different committees would do their appropriations bill, report it out. It would go through the par- the process that I just highlighted before, and then there was transparency. Everybody could see what was going on. It was a slow the deliberative process, and then over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we now take all those bills and we throw them in together into what we call an omnibus, and nobody knows what's in them, and then they put them together, the bill goes to the rules committee, they set the rules for debate, then it goes to the floor, members have 24 to 48 hours to even see what's in it. And you you remember with the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare bill, Nancy Pelosi saying, we have to pass it to see what's in it. And, And I'm sure she didn't mean to say that, but that's exactly the environment that we're in, completely counter to what the founders gave us. That Affordable Care Act, 2,700 pages, 2,700 pages. And what they did is they slipped in They gave the federal government the authority to give student loans. And so now student loans have surpassed credit card debt because they've made it too easy for students to get loans. And second of all, second of all associated with that is the fact that not only is the federal government backing the, the ability to give these student loans the colleges and universities the first thing that they did when that occurred was jack up their prices jack up their rates i mean it's expensive to go to school when we were going to school and most of you on this uh, on the zoom tonight it was okay to work your way through school or even start the first two years at a junior college and work your way through and i would dare say that those who had to do that appreciated their education far more than our young people today who are who are racking up $50,000, dollars $70,000 of student debt. I, I was just talking to a young man recently who decided he wanted to go to law school, so he picked Georgetown. When he leaves Georgetown in three years, he will have $200,000 in student debt. And I said, are you sure you want to do this? You know, you can always get a job and, and go to law school at night. You know, that's too hard. That's too hard. We've made it too easy for these young people to get these loans. And, and at some point, I know the, the others on the left, some on the left are trying to get the Congress and the administration to forgive that student debt. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's where we are. Okay. The 23rd principle. A free society cannot survive as a republic without a broad program of education. The English colonists, and this is right from the text, in America undertook something which no nation had ever attempted before, and that's educating the entire populace. The colonists had a sense of manifest destiny. They thought America would be the gathering of scattered Israel. And this led them to believe that they must prepare themselves for this unique and important role in the unfolding of modern world history. And that universal education was therefore considered an indispensable ingredient in this preparation. Now, this was not run by the national government. They wanted a broad program of general education but they wanted the states and the local communities to do it. The federal government would not play play a role other than the promotion of it and to support it, but it would be directed on the ground level by the people. It was even written into the code of many of the states. John Adams said they made an early provision by law that every town consisting of so many families, either 50 or hundred families, should be always furnished with a grammar school. They made it a crime for such a town to be destitute of a grammar school master for a few months, and they were subjected to a heavy penalty so that the education of all ranks of people was made the care and expense of the public in a manner that I believe has been unknown to any other people, ancient or modern. Adams also wrote that the consequences of these establishments we see and feel every day and this was written in 1765. He said a native of America who cannot read and write is as rare as a comet or an earthquake. Such a contrast to today where one only 1 in 5 kids of color can read at an 8th grade level. So instead of focusing all of our resources on reading, writing and arithmetic and arming these kids with what they need to be competitive in society. We're instead focused on race, gender and sexual identity and indoctrinating these kids. And it's, it's unfortunate what's going on today. So let's talk about the importance of what the founders considered good local school boards and they called them committees. And so the, the community would get together and they would select highly conscientious people to serve on a school committee. My, my own personal feeling is that the school board should be made up of moms who have kids in the school system. And they would serve, and this was the, the founder's vision. They would serve three-year terms. One third of the committee would be chosen annually. So there would be continuity. The school committee would be required to visit all the public schools at least once per month and then report annually to the town, to the city council, how those schools are doing. They, along with the parents, would be responsible for picking the textbooks, designing the curriculum, and that the school committee, the school board would examine candidates for teachers and issue certificates to those selected because they believe that we have to have an educated citizenry. But people today don't want an educated citizenry because they're easy to control. So in Europe, at the same time that we're forming the United States, particularly in France, only one in five people could read and write. And we know the founders studied history, they realized that when only one in five can read, that means the elites are in charge. And so you had that pendulum of tyranny to anarchy going on in France. A group of people or a king would, be, would get in charge. The people were kept ignorant. He or she would oppress the people. Then they would create anarchy. They would kill the king. And then they would say, hey, what are we supposed to do? We need somebody to clean up this mess. Then somebody would be standing over in the corner, and Napoleon said, Hey, if you make me king, I will take care of all this. Then he becomes king. And it's the pendulum goes between tyranny and anarchy because it's the few, the elite, that are in charge while the masses are ignorant. And the founders knew that that was not sustainable. So in the American colonies, the intention was to have all children be taught the fundamentals of reading writing, and arithmetic so that they could go on to become well-informed citizens through their own diligent self-study, where the kids were taught to love education so that they would want to seek out the best books and study themselves. Look at George Washington, Ben Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass, Mary McLeod Bethune, Matthew Henson, There is a long list of individuals that we can draw upon who didn't go to formal schools. They did a lot of reading and studying on their own. And so today we've got these these walled compounds where our kids are sitting in, they move from classroom to classroom uh, by the bell, and they're in their same age groups and all they get is that teacher. We don't expose them to the outside community, no one can get in or go out of the school. And so it's such a different environment than what the founders had envisioned. And they were big on decentralization. So religion, morality and knowledge is what the founders wanted taught in the schools. So during the, before the Constitutional convention, the Continental Congress passed what was called the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. So they knew that these states in the Ohio River Valley would eventually become states, and they wanted these different states to come in on equal footing. But the founders were very adamant that they wanted religion, morality, and knowledge taught in the school. Religion, those five tenets that we've talked about in terms of Ben Franklin with regard to the religion of America, they wanted morality taught in the schools where the kids would have a feeling of what's right versus wrong, and then general knowledge, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And it's interesting to note, in Northwest Territory, the founders prohibited slavery. They wanted slavery to be contained in the South so that it would eventually die out of its own if they could keep it contained. They were focused on nation building so they could keep slavery contained in the South. It would eventually die out because they all knew at the Constitutional Convention there was a prevailing theme that how can we want freedom for ourselves if we still own slaves, but we need time to phase it out. So the Northwest Ordinance. So in New England, break break from the text, every citizen, Oh, actually that's a quote I've got. I'm gonna read that quote later. Let Let me go to the next slide. Okay, this super interesting that came across my desk tonight, I was I was looking at Twitter, and this is a famous picture of the Pieta, which sits in the Vatican, and that's Jesus Christ in the lap of Mary, and it's, and um, who actually did this? It was Michelangelo. Michelangelo did this. He was only 24 years old when he finished what's famously called the Pieta. And so I looked at some of the comments on Twitter and it was really revealing. In fact, this is part of an article that I read. One individual in this comment asked why we don't have artists like Michelangelo anymore, Michelangelo anymore. While another person noted, the geniuses of a few artists, composers, and scientists make me wonder if we were really created equally, which is an interesting statement. That last comment hit on the problem with that one little word, equally. Equality is everywhere today. We urge equal rights for women, which is a good thing. Equality between the races, that's a good thing. We advocate for marriage equality and trans equality and equality of the genders, for we don't even even realize exists. We love equality so much That is almost as if we think all are equal, but that some are even more equal than others. We're just so laser focused, obsessed with that word equality. So society's mass devotion to equality is so strong that it's easy to assume that this trait alone will make us prosperous and advanced both as individuals and and as a society. But equality comes at a cost. And it may be that instead of advancing us, equality is really holding us back. Equality is holding us back. And this is what Alexis de Tocqueville said in his book, Democracy in America. He said, thus in proportion, as men become more alike and the principle of equality is more peaceably and deeply infused into the institutions and manners of the country, he wrote, the rules of advancement become more inflexible. Advancement itself slower. The difficulty of arriving quickly at a certain height far greater. So in an essence, if we're all going to be the same, then some must suffer. And the easiest way to make that happen is to make the overachievers and those in the middle of the pack go to the pace of the laggards. So in San Diego School District a few years ago, they were studying the disparity of graduation rates for kids of color and white students. And they did a study and they found that 93% of the white kids that had gone through the school system had graduated and only 80% of kids of color, black kids, which actually that's far better than the nation's average. So what they did was they found in this study that the kids that were graduating, that were going on through high school and having success were doing their homework. They were doing their assignments. They were getting it done. So guess what they did? So instead of, studying the success and applying it to the mass, let's find out why these kids are doing their homework. Are they able to do these things? Let's take, let's study success and apply it to the masses. Instead, what they did was they did away with homework because they wanted to even things out. They thought that was the solution. So they studied failure and they applied that to all the kids. So that that statement that Alexis de Tocqueville just gave us really highlights where we are today, where we've dumbed things down for our kids, all out of the notion of equality, equality. And we we see it today where we're basing everything on race. And so we've dumbed things down, which is so condescending to kids of color who we know through history were able to achieve great and wonderful things. If just given the opportunity and will rise to the challenge, if we guide them to the challenge, instead of patting them on the head and telling them that because you're a kid of color, you can't make it. I was, I was reading instantly. I love black history. And there was a story about the golden 13, the golden 13. So back in 1936, Eleanor Roosevelt went to her husband, Franklin and said you know there are no black navy officers in the military so what they decided to do is they they went out and they found 16 people of color black sailors and decided that we're going to do an experiment we're going to try to help you all become officers but as you could imagine there were some people who didn't agree with that and didn't want to go along with that so instead of Giving these Navy individuals, these members of the Navy, 16 weeks to study for the exams to become an officer, they cut it in half and said, you guys, you only get eight weeks. So what they did was they boarded up their the dorms that they were in, the barracks they were in, and they studied around the clock. They studied around the clock, and then when it was time to take the test, 13 out of the 16 had some of the highest scores ever in the Navy. And those scores are still the highest today. And they decided, well, obviously, you all must have cheated. So then they made them take the test again, but they divided them. They put them in different classrooms. And some of them even scored higher. And so they're called the Golden 13. Incredible story. So what what I'm trying to highlight here is that We all have God-given ability to be the very best that we can, and we need to guide our kids to the challenge as opposed to dumbing it down. And it's all based on that word equality, and we have taken it to the extreme, so counter to what the founders gave us. So Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville also said this. In New England, every citizen receives the elementary notions of human knowledge. That's reading, writing, and written arithmetic. He is taught, moreover, the doctrines and the evidences of his religion. So there's the, so you've got knowledge, you've got religion. He's taught the history of his country and the leading features of the Constitution. We're, we're not doing any of that in schools today. In the states of Connecticut and Massachusetts, it is extremely rare to find a man imperfectly acquainted with all these things, and a person wholly ignorant of them is sort of a phenomenon. Sort of a phenomenon, which is so counter to what we have today. So, how do we get in this mess that we've gotten into with regard to their education? So, these are what I call the prophets of communism. We started with Karl Marx. In the early 1800s, mid-1800s, Horace Mann was a disciple of Karl Marx. In the 1850s, in America, started sowing the seeds of a progressive education. But the people were still focused on religion, morality, and knowledge being taught in the schools that they ignored Mr. Mann. But the damage had been done because he had planted the seeds. So in the early 1900s, there comes, on the right-hand side, John Dewey comes along and he takes Horace Mann's ideas based on Karl Marx and creates the delivery system in our education system. And he does it at Columbia Teachers College in New York, which turned out a large percentage of teachers into America. Now, H.O. Mencken in April of 1924, who's an American journalist, he said this. The original premise beyond education, and let's go back to what we're thinking about in terms of the founders, to fill the young of species with knowledge and awaken their intelligence. Thomas Edison, Ben Franklin, we want to teach them a love of learning so they can go and do self-study and awaken their intelligence. Because we, as human beings, we are intelligence. Then he goes on to say this, nothing could be further from the truth. The aim is simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same level, to breed and train a standardized citizenry to put down dissent and originality. That is the aim in the United States and that is the aim everywhere else. This was said in 1924. So John Dewey, as I indicated, took Horace Mann's ideas and organized them into an educational delivery system. So in an effort to modernize education, he encouraged the abandonment of the one-room schoolhouse. In the one-room schoolhouse, you have ages of all different colors. You have families together. He said, no, we're not gonna do that. We're, We're going to what I call initiate progressive education where we're gonna put the younger kids in one school, the middle school kids in another school, and the high school kids at this school, and we're gonna replace family and the influence of a mother with peer pressure. So we're gonna separate them. So all ages are separated. We wanna eliminate the influence of religion, which was done in the 1960s by the Supreme Court. And then we want to keep kids busy and distracted all day. And that's what's happening. We see schools today who are providing breakfast, lunch, and sometimes dinner for the kids, taking away that responsibility from the family to to feed their children, and they get them in school, and they keep them there all day. And then on top of that, they're given two, three, four hours worth of homework. And so when when dad wants to take the kids and the mom out to dinner or mom wants to do that, uh, we, we can't go. We have too much homework to do. So that that was all done by design. OK, principle 24. Yeah, it's, we went and saw Top Gun last night. That, it's a really good movie. I would highly recommend it. It was awesome. Tom Cruise, man, I love he, he's great in the movies. He's awesome. Principle 24, a free people will not survive unless they stay strong. So in less than a hundred years, we've talked about this before, America had 6% of the world's population, but we were producing 50% of the world's wealth. And so from the text, it says prosperity in the midst of thriving industry, fruitful for farms, beautiful cities and flourishing commerce always attracts the greedy aspirations of predatory nations. They're looking over at this other country and they're saying, dang, instead of producing that ourselves or figuring out how they do it, let's just go and take what they have. So singly, those covetous predators may not pose a threat, but federated together, they may present a specter of total desolation to a free and prosperous people. Let's think back to World War I and World War II. It was the philosophy of the founders that the kind hand of providence, which is God, had been everywhere present and allowing the United States to come forth as the first free people in modern times. That is the American covenant. So when George Washington takes the oath of office in front of Federal Hall in New York City, which I would highly recommend you go visit, they walk down to St. Paul's Church, and that's when they promise Lord, we will do it thy way. We will keep the commandments. We will recognize Thy hand in all that we're doing. Just in in return for that, please bless our nation and help us to be prosperous. They further felt through this covenant that they would forever be blessed with freedom and prosperity if they remain a virtuous and adequately armed nation. Ben Franklin, 1747, awesome quote here. He said, the very frame of our strength and readiness would be a means of discouraging our enemies. In other words, there's peace through strength. He says, one sword often keeps another in the scabbard. The way to secure peace is to be prepared for war. They that are on their guard and appear ready to receive their adversaries are in much less danger of being attacked if they're prepared. This is, what he was, this is what he was talking about. And then you look back to George Washington. He was a great man. He's often described, as it says here in the text, first in peace, first in war, first in the hearts of his countrymen. We revere George Washington. He still should have his own holiday. We should still be celebrating George Washington's birthday. But now we've got President's Day. Washington had literally risked his life, his fortune and his sacred honor for the cause of freedom. And he performed that task under circumstances that would have crushed an ordinary man. He fought the Revolutionary War with practically no army, no Navy of any consequence, with no Navy of any consequence, no trained professional army of either size or stability, and no outpouring of genuine support from the very states he was striving to save. Washington could have retired in bitterness after Valley Forge and then a year later in Morristown, but instead that was not in his character, he endured it. He stuck with it and he went on to say in his position on national defense because of his experience, he said to be prepared for war is one of the most effectual means of preserving peace. If you know, and we all know this, when we're going to school, we don't mess with the bully. We don't mess with the the kid who's got the biggest muscles and is we, we don't go pick fights with those kind of people. And so, and as Ronald Reagan said, there's peace through strength. And he definitely led the way with regard to that in these, uh, these most recent times, and I would say Donald Trump also has done the same. So I wanna close with a quote here from Samuel Adams where he talks about freedom can be lost in one generation. It is the greatest absurdity to suppose it would be in the power of one or any number of men at the entering into society to renounce their essential natural rights or the means of preserving the right, those rights, when the grand end of civil government, from the very nature of its institution, is for the support, protection, and defense of those very rights, the principle of which are life, liberty, and property. What he's saying there is, it's beyond reason, and it's not godlike. Particularly, we see freedom as a gift from God to just give up our rights without a fight. That's that's what he's saying here. The right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty is not in the power of man to alienate this gift and voluntarily become a slave. So when we see people around us cower to what the government wants us to do and and not standing up and fighting for their rights and doing it in a peaceful way through, through highlighting what we've learned in this class and others regarding the principles of freedom, we are abdicating those that responsibility to others. So basically what I'd like to say to you all is I commend you for your, your fortitude, your faithfulness, and your desire to be in these classes and to learn.